0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: It's not that history repeats itself because it doesn't, but it doesn't move in a straight line. The other thing is that there are many possible futures.
2: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Margaret Atwood is a legend in every possible direction. The Canadian octogenarian is best known for her mega bestselling dystopian fiction, including, of course, The Handmaid's Tale which was the most read book of 2017 and became a TV series hit, which I'm guessing most of you have watched. Margaret imagines future societies, the worst scenarios in these future societies, worlds of genetic modification, pharmaceutical and corporate control, human-made disasters, theocracies where women's bodies are controlled by capitalist overlords. But this is the thing, her dark fantasies have a horrifying habit of coming true. The Handmaid's Tale, for instance, was written in the early 1980s, but was totally and and eerily a portent for the new abortion laws in the US, the erosion of American democracy, even the January 6th insurrection. But at age 83, Margaret, dubbed the prophet of dystopia, is turning her vibrancy and fired-upness to creating utopias, or rather she is trying to find a way to save the world. Since 1961, she has published a book a year, all of them handwritten before being typed up into manuscripts She has multiple orders of and peace prizes and Booker prizes and other medals and letters after a name for the environmental, feminist, academic and equity contributions that she's made to the planet. And a little promoted fact she's also an inventor. She's the inventor of the long pen device and a bunch of associated technologies that do remote robotic writing of documents. There you go. But this new project that she's involved in called Practical Utopias takes a very different tact. It's an online program which she steers, but it gets participants to develop solutions with experts and activists and wild thinkers such as Dr. David Suzuki and Bill McKibben to develop solutions to the the big, hard, wicked problems that we face, such as you know, climate destruction, the various inequalities in the world, fragmentation, the crumbling of democracy, and so on and so forth. It's like she's turned from warning us of what's to come to going, well, we're here in it now. Even I couldn't make this shit up, so let's turn the creative juices around to fixes. I mean, it's mad. It's wild mad. Someone had to do it, and I'm glad it's Margaret Atwood. I have to confess to you all here that I have not read a lot of her fiction and also not for quite some time. Perhaps I've been too embroiled in the IRL dystopias for the past decade or so, but it's her activism and her political fired up essays that saw me email her a week or two ago to ask if she'd like to join us here on Wild. I don't know if you read her substack or follow her on social media. She goes hard at all the big issues trans, social politics, cancel culture, theories of nationhood, capitalism and environmental issues, and not always from the obvious leftist, wokest angles. She's not afraid of the blowback, which she definitely cops from all sides, or should I say in 2022, from both extremes. But wonderfully, she brings a dry, almost naughty humour and wildness to it all. When the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade some time back, she posted a picture of herself drinking coffee from a mug with the words, I told you so, written across it, and a mock, smug look on her face. This is not an interview about her writing techniques. And I somehow get the impression, after many decades of these kinds of interviews, she's a little tired of giving them. It's about the state of the world, her theories and ideas, the fun of being an outraged woman. It's about being inspired. And just a bit of explanatory housekeeping stuff before we start. You might have noticed I'm running ads here on wild podcasts are not free to make. And I need to pay my team of audio and guest producers who help me wrangle each episode into your listening devices each week. Ads pay the price of me being able to put out content that I hope shifts dials to the green, to the better, to the richer in the emotional sense. I have all kinds of filters for screening out unconscionable ads, which means that the stuff that does run, you can generally feel confident, is legitimate and life-enhancing. But from time to time, of course, I may have to run some that are, well, for products that I and perhaps you would not personally choose to use, but I'm hoping you're cool and understanding with all of this. Okay, that's all. Onwards to Margaret Atwood. I might actually start, Margaret, by asking whether you enjoy doing these kinds of conversations with strangers on the other side of the world who just want to pick your brains.
1: Well, it depends who they are, doesn't it? If it's somebody who, who wants nothing more than to attack me in a malicious, underhand and untruthful way, then I don't enjoy it. But when it's a sympathetically minded person, I do enjoy it. I'm very sympathetically minded, so we should be all good here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, I know this is a question you would get very often, but your books have a terrifying habit of coming true. And just to remind listeners, for instance, The Handmaid's Tale was published in 1985. A lot of people forget that. Cut to four decades later, the nightmare has played out in real life. You know, we've got climate change that has indeed affected fertility. Regimes are indeed clamping down on women's bodies. And I think even January 6th was predicted in your book. As I say, you've been asked this many times before, but I'm interested in your mega history kind of take, right? Why does this happen? Is it some magical power you have or is it because history works in reactionary cycles?
1: Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, it's not that history repeats itself because it doesn't, but it doesn't move in a straight line. So there is no yellow brick road to the magical land of Oz and we are not on that road. The other thing is that there isn't one just the future. There are many possible futures. If you are are looking at the past, which evolutionary biologists tell us that the ability to remember the past is only there because it's helpful for us in anticipating the future. You look at the past, you see what people have done, and then you read the tea leaves and place your bets as to what they will do. Another thing is that countries tend to found their present-day regimes on things they have done in the past. Right now we have a a czar-like figure in Russia because people are used to them, you know. They've had lots of czars before. (laughs) And what did we have at the foundation of America? We did not have a democracy. We had a 17th century Puritan autocracy. People at the top, they were theocrats. Harvard did not begin as a liberal arts educational institution. It began as a theological seminary in the 17th century. It's like Aztec pyramids. They they didn't knock down one and build an entirely new one. They, they built another one on top of the one they already had. So we tend to build things on top of stuff we already had. How did Britain get to parliamentary democracy? Well, it was a long windy road, but I would say it began with the Vikings and continued through the Magna Carta, ripped up by the unluckily named King John, and then by increments, and not without back steps. So Henry the Eighth, chopping off the heads of, of two of his wives, was basically a tyrant, with side steps, with backward steps, and I'm pretty nervous about the word progress because it has often been used to justify some pretty terrible things.
2: It's interesting. I remember when I was studying women's studies back in the early 90s at university, We looked at patterns that occurred throughout history, particularly in the West, where women's freedom or or lack thereof was a direct reaction to the economics of the time. So, you know, in the 1920s, as you emerged into the Great Depression, women's bodies became very androgynous, straight up and down. They developed a whole heap of freedom. So the the women's movement, you know, the vote was granted and that kind of thing, women got... (laughs) some progressive action happening. You then look at the 1950s and of course it was a time of opulence. Women get sent back to the suburbs to become mother figures and of course their figures become very curvy.
1: Let's dial in the war. So women got the vote as a result of World War I. Not that people had not been agitating before that time, but their own war contributions plus The deaths of so many of their sons, mostly sons, some daughters, finally tipped that over the edge and some of them got the vote. French women didn't get the vote until after World War II, by the way. So a little here, a little there. But the the 19th century, particularly amongst the writers of utopias, of which there were numerous ones, were obsessed with the woman question. It was what people were talking about a lot. And some of the scary utopias in, women, in which women have a lot of power, oh oh, and then some of the dystopias that come along, in which they don't, because nobody does. It was all a hot topic of conversation into the twentieth. World War One, they get the vote, and then it's boom times in the nineteen twenties. That's when you get the Charleston and. Little flasks for drinking out of tucked into your garter. Prohibition, of course, comes along. In the 30s, it was not done if you were married for you to have a job because jobs were scarce. So we had to be fair. We had, we had to make it so that every family had a source of support, and that would be a man if available. In the 40s, along comes World War II. Oh well, we need Rosie the Riveter. We need you to work in a bomb factory. Please thank you very much. We will take pictures of you with the great big biceps and your hair done up in a thing. Men come back from the war and they need those jobs. Some of those jobs disappeared anyway. You weren't gonna be making tons of bullets anymore. So there was a concerted propaganda effort to get women back into the open plan for child washer dryer modern house. Then we have Dior's new look, which was 1950. I remember it clearly. I was there. Then you get the nipped in waist. You get the poofy skirts. You get the high heels. You get the pastel fabrics, not the dark colors of the 40s, which are dark because you didn't have to wash them so much. You got the self-wired, self-standing strapless tops.
2: It was all to make women feel very precarious and kind of static.
1: Very feminine. That kind of missed my generation, too. We did have those kinds of formals, but they were only for once or twice a year. We were into jeans and plaid shirts for our tomboyish activities.
2: Well, isn't it funny? You're wearing a plaid shirt right now and I'm wearing kind of the clothing of my era. So I came into my womanhood in the 1990s, which is of course the grunge era. Feminism had another uptick. We were all involved in the feminist movement and we're all protesting. In the 90s? Yes, this is in the 90s. Australia went through its recession. Everything became very austere and the body shape was straight up and down and we all wore no makeup anti-logo or anti-slogan outfits we shopped at op shops it was a really great time to be a woman I've got to say but we come to the current era and there's all kinds of things going on including I think a return to that voluptuous figure that voluptuous figure has been around for a little a little while thanks to the Kardashians and all that kind of thing but in terms of that precarious clothing the clothing that makes it very difficult difficult to just get around and do life. I see it everywhere. I just see those swings and roundabouts, but I wouldn't mind actually getting even a broader take on things because you wrote The Handmaid's Tale in the mid 80s and it was a time when capitalism had hit full stride and neoliberalism was on the rise. You know, Thatcher came out with the death of society. There is no such thing as society and Reagan was into it as well and then there was the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was sort of new ways happening, new ideas, whether you like them or not. And against this setting, you wrote the book. And it was actually from behind the Iron Curtain, interestingly, because you were based in Berlin. You then wrote this book that was sort of about authoritarianism. What I'm curious about is, what is it about the current
1: era that has seen these things actually play out? I wrote it in 84 or 85. We'd had the 70s, which was very active, change the laws having to do with women era. So, yes, you may have a credit card, Virginia, all of your own. Oh, wow. Woo. So a lot of things had changed in the 70s, and then Ronald Reagan got elected, and the religious right began its rise as a political force. I pay attention to what people say they would do should they get power. So when Hitler published Mein Kampf, a lot of people said, oh, he's just fun and you should never think that. (laughs) So these people were already saying what they would like to do. And one of the things they would like to do is shove women back into the home. My question to myself was, how are they going to do that? Since out there they are running around having jobs and credit cards and generally misbehaving themselves, how are you going to get them back into the open plan for child bungalow? All you have to do really is roll time back to about 1850. So no votes for women, very modest body cover-ups, bonnets. So my other question to myself was, if the United States were to become a totalitarianism, what kind of totalitarianism would it become? It would not become a communist one. You would not be able to get enough buy-in for that in the United States. So I'm going to draw you in your head. Just imagine this. It's a circle. Up at the top is tyranny. Down at the bottom is chaos. Through the middle is the temperate zone. Let us say when people are temperate, they're moderate. Live and let live. You don't have to throw a brick through the window of your neighbor. You're not polarized. You are accommodating. You are tolerant of other people's points of view. Call that the middle. And the middle is the hardest to defend because it's always being attacked from the extremes. On both sides. Here's the middle. there's an arrow on the left and on the right there's two arrows they're both going down towards chaos and on the left and on the right there's there are also two arrows and they're going up towards tyranny. So you can get to either chaos or tyranny either from the left or from the right. Once you're in chaos, people reach a point where they cannot tolerate any more chaos. They get scared, It's impossible to function. And at that point, you get an arrow, either from the left or from the right, going all the way up to tyranny and bypassing the middle altogether. And once you're up at the tyranny, they take steps to try to ensure that it remains in place. So is that where we're at now? We haven't reached enough chaos for that to happen, but we are seeing attacks on the moderates. That that's what you've been seeing in the states in the Republican Party. Once extremes get going, they push things within their bubble, you know, within the Republican Party, let us say. They push them further and further to the extreme. And that goes for any kind of chaotic social panic, moral panic kind of situation. People start accusing one another within their group because you don't want to be the accused one until you get all the way over to the extreme. Now, the thing about the United States is it still is a democracy and people still can vote. And there is an aversion to those extreme positions because we still have enough moderates in the middle. I should say they do. And that's why people try to eliminate the moderates. (laughs) They try to get rid of them one way or another, silence them or co-opt them, recruit them, because they don't buy these extremes. They don't buy the model in which there is no moderate, and the two sides can go head to head just like a football game. Yeah, moderates sort of almost get in the way. They wander out into the field and say, oh, kids, let's not fight. Can't we just talk this over in a reasonable way? The Testaments, the
2: follow-up book to The Handmaid's Tale, is about how different people react to authoritarian incursions. And I'd love your thoughts on something that I think is very related and contemporary, the bewildering debate around freedom and cancel culture. We seem very confused right now as to what freedom is. Margaret Atwood, what's going
1: on here? I think you're seeing, you know, a scuffle in the schoolyard as to who gets to have the biggest number of marbles. You're going to hear various points of view argued, but let me just say generally that if you invent a weapon, such as cancel culture. Sooner or later, your opponents will use it against you. It was going on in the, say, 17, 18, 19. And what are we having now in the States? We're having a big wave of book censorship. You think it was okay to shut people down? Well, now here's his being shut down. All of these books by people that you assumed were people you were supporting, they're all being pulled out of schools and libraries. But you have given the okay to that kind of behavior, so how can you complain about it? And then it becomes an argument about, I want to cancel you, and you want to cancel me. And this is just the right-left extremist argument going on. As you know, a bunch of us did this letter in Harper saying, can't we have reasonable discussions? No, 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 we can't. We have to, you know, beat each other up and hit each other over the head. Well, no, this is the result. So happy times. Hope you're enjoying it. I feel
2: that it's got to get worse before we can get an outcome to all of this.
1: I'm not sure that is true. No? People are already sick of it. Okay. So what, what do we have? We have um, PEN, for instance, P E N fighting back with a pretty reasoned rundown on what free speech is and what it is not.
2: And just to interrupt there, PEN is a sort of literary uh, organization that defends the right to publish books. And I think you worked with them to create your fireproof copy of The Handmaid's Tale.
1: Yes. So once you start burning books, of course, even though you may feel very righteous about the books that you're burning, somebody's going to burn yours. As I said, any weapon that you you devise will sooner or later be used against you. And Obama got elected because he'd figured out social media and the Republicans hadn't, but then they figured it out. So you've got an atom bomb. Well, now we've got one too.
2: So do you think then maybe the problem is, is that the we're not getting pissed off enough? The middle, the moderates in the middle, do we just need to get more pissed off just to speed this whole thing up?
1: Okay, let's talk about real life. In real life, a lot of people have jobs. And if they go about disporting themselves the way you and I do, and making podcasts about controversial subjects, they will probably get fired. They may well be quite annoyed, and they do get a chance to vote. And and you will notice that they did not vote for ex-President Trump's extreme picks
2: and as you might know,
1: Margaret, here
2: in Australia, we actually voted out our more right-wing, conservative, highly problematic reactionary government.
1: Yes, because, because you were annoyed. So just because people are not making podcasts about all of this kind of thing because they might get fired doesn't mean that they like the extremes. They, they don't, partly because they know they themselves would be sent to the guillotine. So don't underestimate what people are secretly thinking and feeling, even though they may not be putting their hands up because they have a mortgage. I think that's
2: a really good point. And you've I've heard you say in interviews before that you don't consider yourself an activist. You're somebody, however, who works for themselves and you're in a position to be able to speak out because you won't get fired.
1: Yeah. So I'm asked to do it a lot. I pick and choose what I do it about, but we know the general list. People who can't do that. It's not that they don't want to. That's what they're thinking and feeling, but it it would be too dangerous for them.
2: And also we're in a very privileged position. I'm much the same as you. I feel a responsibility to voice the outrage because I'm in a position not to get fired. But also I've got a platform and I've got the ability to use my voice. I'm trained in using words. And so it puts me in a position to be able to do this. But I guess maybe I could ask, where do you think this is all going to end up? There isn't any end up. (laughs) I always think in terms of keeping the camera rolling. When people ask me similar questions, let's keep the camera rolling. And I'm wondering, do you find that exciting? Do you find it actually quite enthralling to observe life unfold when you take that position that you don't know where it's going to end up?
1: Well, nobody does. I think of my mother when she was 90. The year 2000 was going to arrive, and uh, she was getting fairly blind. We set off some fireworks in the backyard so she could actually see something, and she <laughs> did because we set fire to the weeds out there. It was quite a little conflagration. She I can see that. Uh, so, <laughs> but she said, I want to stay alive long enough to see what's going to happen. So there is this what's going to happen next. But I think that is a more frightening question for somebody who's 20 than it is for somebody who's 83.
2: Why don't we move on to utopias and solutions and potential fixes? I'd love you to explain your latest project, and this is what really grabbed my attention. I thought if Margaret Atwood is working on on this project, it's actually going to get some traction, and it sounds fantastic. Can you explain what Practical Utopias is and why this has become your focus?
1: Okay, so it's my focus because as I go... To and fro in the world, listening to a lot of people, the kinds of questions that they ask during question period have changed over time. So in about 1971, it was do you hate men? Answer which ones. So then it's shifted into your writing process, and then it shifted into the handmaid's tale. Right now, I've been hearing a lot of is there hope? Practical utopias, a friend of mine who I knew in another life that I was doing a little while ago, an entrepreneurial type of person called Candace Factor started a platform called Disco, D-I-S-C-O, which is a two-way interactive learning platform. She came to me and said, can we do something on Disco? And I knew what she had in mind. She wanted me to teach creative writing. And I didn't want to do that because I had already downloaded my brain on that subject into a masterclass. But I said, what, I, what does interest me a lot, having been a Victorianist, I knew a lot about impractical utopias, Yes things that went pear-shaped, so literary ones and real ones that didn't work out. So I said, what we really need, because we've had a lot of dystopia, we've had a lot of things are going to ratchet, we're all doomed. It's not ultimately motivating, because if we're all doomed, we might as well just party and enjoy your moments <laughs> before the lights go out. I don't happen to believe that the lights will inevitably go out. So I said, let's do practical utopias, a project in which people are given a mandate of carbon neutral or carbon negative, scalable, that is cheap enough so that you can actually do it, and attractive enough so that people will wish to do it. So no just eating nothing but tofu and dressing in gray hemp clothing. And since human beings are inherently inventive and creative, I thought, okay, we'll put people together in teams, see what they come up with.
2: I think I have this right. It's a digital program that goes over eight weeks. Participants get together in groups and they solve certain problems and come up with creative solutions. What kind of issues are they solving and what kind of solutions are emerging?
1: We gave them a lot of tools because it is an age of a huge number of new inventions. All of these tools are already out there, and you can see some of them on on an outfit called Project Drawdown. It's a website, it's a book, it's a resource. So we gave them a lot of resources. We said, so going in, we're going to do the first part on material worlds. What sort of house are you going to live in? What are you going to eat? What kind of clothing are you going to wear? What will it be made of? What about your water supply? What about your waste management? What about your corpse disposal?
2: What about the corpse disposal? What solutions have they come up with there?
1: We were doing burial in graveyards with all of this embalming fluid and and all kinds of stuff going into the soil. And then we were doing cremation, which emits a lot of greenhouse gases. So there are things already happening, green burials and pod burials in which you get put in with a tree and the Mm -hmm. two of you get planted together. (laughs) Nice.
2: That's a nice way to go out.
1: And uh, something called recompose, which uses an entirely organic process to turn you into compost very quickly, which can be then applied to the rose bed should you choose. So all of these things are now available. People are already doing them. So our other thing was you can't just make stuff up. You have to use tools and materials and processes that have already been invented. So that meant that they had to go off and research. So we had 200 full participants, everything from 18-year-olds to 75-year-olds and in 40 different countries. And the ones in your time zone actually got up in the middle of the night. (laughs) We put together these eight teams of 25. They had to name their utopia. They had to say where it was situated. And then they had to solve these material problems and come up. And we hired illustrators to draw what they came up with. They worked with the illustrators. Then we went to the governance aspect and the social part. So what about healthcare? What about education? Um, Are you going to have a police force? Are you going to have a king? Are you going to have a dictatorship? Are you going to have a wise council of elders? Are you going to have a democracy? So they had to thrash that out. And we got facilitators um, to help them do conflict resolution. Should people not agree with one another? and i was very proud of them you know I, I thought this could just be a complete scrum but it wasn't they they worked it through i think they had some hard parts but they came to consensus they presented their utopias in the final week and they were brilliant i have to say and some of them made little movies some of them did some pretend interview shows some of them did theme songs They worked very hard and they were very creative.
2: Margaret, you'd be aware of Rebecca Solnit's definition of hope. And it's the idea of optimism plus action. Optimism is actually as destructive and problematic as pessimism because it's this idea of sitting back thinking everything's okay, somebody will come and fix it. Let's just get on with our hedonistic life. Action is so important and engagement in this. And really rise to the occasion and we experience hope in that moment. And the program that you've put together, I think, is incredible for that. But as a general rule, I mean, I'm a climate activist. There'll be listeners to this podcast who are also activists in various realms. There's this incredible frustration that there's this almost complacency in contemporary culture where where people aren't activating that hopeful energy, you know, that activism, that action and that engagement. It's like we're sort of the proverbial frogs in the warming pot of water on the stove, you know, and we're getting so sleepy as the water gets warmer and we're losing our energy to jump out, right, and sort of engage with the chaos and react and and fight back. I'm just wondering if you have seen ways and means in your incredible life for getting people more engaged in effective activism.
1: Okay. It's practical utopias. (laughs) So I've lived through several different energy sources. When I came into the picture, it was coal. That was very quickly replaced by oil when that became available. And then it became natural gas and uh, that's probably where a lot of us are now with a, with electrical depending on the source of the electricity i feel that if you give people and by the way it took 3 years between the advent of cheap enough transatlantic airplane travel and the disappearance of the great luxury liners that everybody thought would be there forever so if you give people tools that are cheaper more effective that they can actually have, they will do it because it is more convenient and cheaper. And who wouldn't do more convenient and cheaper? Who would not do it? No, I want more expensive and and stupider. So I think it's partly a matter of making those tools um, available and known. So, induction cooking is on the rise because it it's is. cheaper.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, and it's more effective and we're learning that gas is highly
1: problematic for children. Exactly. So, you're going to see these, these changeovers. They're not always good. I come to you from the age of ringer washers when there weren't any electric dryers and you, you did the drying outside. And that's probably going to come back if energy prices get too high. But it was very convenient. It's very convenient just to throw your clothes in the dryer. But if the cost gets too high, then people won't do it. And there are a lot of countries where they don't because the sun is much more efficient. You just stick it outside. It's hot enough. Things dry.
2: Well, you'd be surprised how many people here in Australia still use a dryer. And I think that's the point. I mean, practicalities are generally guided by the economics, and I think that will get us part of the way. But there is still that issue of shifting people's thinking around convenience.
1: You, you don't make it less convenient. You make it either more convenient or cheaper. Right. Um, so, And you also make it attractive and trendy.
2: Well, that's what I was going to add to all of this. And I think that ties into the storytelling. We need to make the new way of doing things sexier than the status quo. And that is around storytelling, right? We need to tell better stories around this. It can't be all about toil and trouble. It needs to be enlivening.
1: There is an, an element on the left and Rebecca Solnit has talked about this as well, that is a joyless self-flagellating Puritanism. That's not very appealing (laughs) for everybody else. The injunction to flagellate is just not going to have very many takers. No. So you have to make it attractive and fun and cool, but I'm depending on the 14-year-olds to make it cool
2: you don't feel it um, your age, in your 80s,
1: you can make it cool? Oh, no. I'm <laughs> just an old biddy. Who's going to listen to me?
2: I don't know. I, I do. I absolutely do. Yeah, but as,
1: as, a, as a role model of, you know, what what you want to be and do, I mean, excuse me, nobody chooses to be 83 unless they all turn it as death, you know?
2: <laughs> I guess that's one way of, of looking at it. Can I ask you a difficult question, perhaps not a new one, but do you reckon we can pull this crazy thing off? Do you reckon that we can rally together, make this new way of being sexier than the status quo, get really excited about it and actually shift the way we're doing things to save our sorry souls on this planet? Do you reckon we could actually achieve that incredible thing?
1: Yes, in part. So who was it? I think it was William Gibson said, the the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed. People who have some leeway, people who have some wiggle room, people who have choices can do that. People who are living very close to starvation and despair, it's going to be harder for them. But of course, they're not the big consumers anyway. They're not the big carbon emitters. So can you do it instantaneously for eight billion or is it nine billion people uh, all across the globe? No, but can you do a lot more? And can you think of different ways of doing it? The advent of solar heating, solar panels on an individual level is going to be a real boon for people in hot climates. There's a bunch of new inventions coming along that are going to be very useful if you're not living in a multimillionaire mega mansion but if you're living in a more modest way. These things are, once they're deployed, you're not going to need to be attached to an electrical grid just for example.
2: I sort of sense from what you're saying the inequities will likely increase and that concerns me. Not Um,
1: necessarily. No? No. because because there's a cap on that. You can't go above that level and we don't know quite where it is yet without the whole thing falling apart. If the peasants get really revolting, what are they going to go after? They're going to go after the invisible river of money that washes around fueled by digital. So what is the first thing you would then do? You would blow up all the servers what did the peasants do what did they do in olden times they they attacked the castle and burnt the records and then nobody knew who owed what to whom well
2: to that end i mean i feel that the greatest threat that we face is civil unrest we're not going to necessarily all drown or be burnt to a crisp in wildfires you know as a result of climate it's the mass civil unrest. And I know I've you know interviewed Bill McKibben, who I know is part of your Practical Utopias program. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson as well has been on this podcast. And they all have their various fears about what's ahead. Can I ask you what worries you most at the moment?
1: What worries me most? Hmm. Whoa. At this very moment, what we're concerned with right here and now in, in this particular part of the planet is the autocratic power grabs that are going on in our city and in our province. That's just a recipe for increased totalitarianism. It's anti-democratic. There is a lot of protest about it right now.
2: Yeah, I think that's a theme that is rolling out in many parts of the world. Thankfully, we have moved on from such an era, at least for this term of government here in Australia. But okay, I'd love to wind up by asking you about the way in which you speak out. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but you have a resistance that I pick up on to being a good little girl who sticks to the narrow lane of, of being a woman. I'm wondering, have you always not behaved yourself?
1: Depends what we mean by good. And since I have an idea of what I mean by good, which includes fair, um, then when something is, is unfair, I take objection to it. And yes, I have pretty much always been that person, but it's taken different forms. So in the early days we were concentrated on, and I think this happened in Australia too, Uh, Recently, post-colonial countries had to build their own publishing infrastructure, had to, if you're a writer, you found yourself organizing with other writers, creating opportunities where you were rather than feeling you had to go far, far away to London or Paris or New York. So that kind of on-the-ground building, what was supposed to be in a book contract anyway, none of us knew. (laughs) When we started comparing, lo and behold, they were different. So then it went from there to Penn, which was agitating on behalf of people who had been put in prison in other countries for running afoul of governments. But the environmental awareness and activism has always been there because I grew up with the biologists. I've been aware of these things for some time. Although we weren't doing climate in 1955, we were doing pesticides and environmental destruction. But climate has come on stream increasingly as people became more aware of it.
2: I very much enjoy your uh, recent foray into Substack. It's only a week old. (laughs) I know. I've read all of them. It's hilarious. I'm glad I found you so quickly. Um, You've been on Twitter for quite some time. You've got several million followers there. You certainly don't hold back from speaking out. Can I ask, just with everything going on in Twitter at the moment, will you be exiting the platform or are you going to stay there?
1: Remains to be seen. I have signed up for something called Post. So... I looked at the other possibilities. What Twitter can function as when it's being good Twitter instead of bad Twitter? (laughs) What it can function as is a kind of bulletin board. Um, It lets you know what's going on, and, and often in realer time than a newspaper can. The problem with Twitter is you don't know who anybody actually is. So you don't know whether somebody's playing you and this is what happened, I think, entirely a Russian and foreign power play, getting into social media and spreading disinformation. And you need to really check what the source is when you read anything on Twitter. The thing about Substack is you know who the person is. There, there isn't anybody actually imitating them.
2: I moved over to Substack as I was seeing what was happening on other platforms. I didn't like what I was seeing. But can you abide what Elon's doing? Does it bother
1: you who's at the helm? If you knew who was at the helm of all of these other things, you would probably have the same reaction. At least he's doing it out in the open. Just beating up one person over this stuff, it's not very productive. Of course, the other thing you can always do is just skip the whole thing. There's there's no command that says you have to be on social media.
2: Yeah. I do like your way more nuanced, sort of non-reactionary way of going about things. And I've witnessed you manage a bunch of difficult, challenging topics (laughs) over the probably the last decade or two. And I applaud it. We need voices like you and people who actually hold to the reasonable ground. I rejoice in it, especially around these difficult topics to do with cancel culture and the Me Too movement and and so on. Um, We need to have leaders like you been sensible in the debate and reasoned and actually use this kind of multi-dialogue approach. I often feel alone in terms of looking out there for role models, particularly in a country where we've become quite intellectually flaccid. One thing I do is I study women throughout history and who have come before me, who speak out and live lives that I admire and I find inspiring. And you're one of them. Martha Gellhorn is another, and I know that you're a big fan of her work and her way of living. For those who are not familiar with her work, I will put a link to her wonderful biography, A Life, which blew my mind. And then there's Simone de Beauvoir and so on. I study the lives of women like you to feel like I have a place on this planet. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do. It's um, uh, it's very much appreciated.
1: Well, thank you very much.
2: I have to tell you, I have a really annoying habit of stopping record. I, I hit stop at the end of interviews instead of letting the tape roll, you know, just to see where the conversation might go once the official interview ends. In so many instances where I interview a genuinely curious and engaged person, the conversation will switch once the official stuff is over to a far more animated, leaning in chat And in this instance, I can only report back to you anecdotally that Margaret is one such genuinely curious human who seems driven to share and to learn and who's widely read and has quotes and historical references and contextualizations ready to go, like her quote from William Gibson, the cyberpunk writer, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. I love that quote. So yes, offline, she asked me to expand on my comments about Australia's anti-intellectualism. She's actually visited Australia several times and she commented on the misogyny and asked about how things are going with our new PM. We marveled what an odd world we exist in today and how curiosity sustains us. And apropos something or other that she said, or I said, she planted the theory that Putin was behind Brexit. There you go. Look, there's many things I took from the interview, but it was mostly inspiration that I I leave with. I aim to be as curious, as engaged, as lively, as relevant in my 80s well into my 90s as Margaret Atwood is. Being fired up and wild keeps me young and, and off air. She agreed that it was the same for her. Anyway...